Hi, my name is Pastor Scott Searle, the Senior Pastor at Shepherd of the Hills in Edina, Minnesota. Welcome to the podcast of our May 3rd presentation, Finding Common Ground, a panel discussion on public safety and racial justice. Thank you to all of our participants who took time out from their family, friends, rest, and studying to be with us. I will introduce our panelists in the order in which they presented their introductory comments. Leslie Redman, the Vice President of the Minneapolis NAACP and St. Thomas Law Student. Sergeant Bryant Hubbard of the Edina Police Department. Dr. Joy Lewis, Founder and CEO of the consulting group Joy Unlimited. Captain Eric Husfold of the Hopkins Police Department. James Burroughs, Governor Mark Dayton's Chief Inclusion Officer. And Mike Freeman, the Hennepin County Attorney. Our panel was moderated by Hopkins Public School Superintendent, Dr. John Schultz. A brief note about the recording. Unfortunately, the podcast begins just a few moments into Leslie's opening statement. We apologize to Leslie for the lost couple of minutes. Thank you to all of our panelists for their time and wisdom. Shepherd of the Hills is proud to have hosted the evening's conversation, and we welcome your comments and feedback. This time, I again decided that I was going to pursue my law degree. I decided to come to Minnesota to attend the University of St. Thomas School of Law. At the time, I didn't know much about Minnesota, just that it was a state on the map and that it was cold. However, <laughs> however right after I arrived, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. This was in 2014, shortly after I arrived here. One of my professors, Nakima Levy-Pounds, ended up going and a lot of the civil rights clinic was upset that we didn't get to go along for the trip because it was such an important time in history. Um, unfortunately, crisis would strike Minnesota shortly after. I remember receiving an award at the Minnesota Association of Black Lawyers um, and that following morning, Jamar Clark I had been notified that Jamar Clark was killed as well in North Minneapolis, and I attend Shallow Temple International Ministries, which was right down the street from the 4th Precinct. Um, myself, Jason Soule, who's the president for the Minneapolis NAACP, the former president, Nikema Levy-Pounds, we went out and we had the opportunity to talk to the family members, talk to some of the witnesses, host a press conference, again, truly be the change that we wanted to see. During that time, we had no idea that it would lead up to the 18-day occupation of the 4th Precinct but I'm proud of the community members that took a stance and stood up for what they believed in. Shortly after that, Fernando Castile was killed as well in St. Paul. I actually moved from Minneapolis to St. Paul, and so it was not too far away from me. I also uh, participated and was at the governor's mansion, again, was able to be on the ground and see a lot of things that I'd never seen before. During the Jamar Clark situation, I was actually at the 4th Precinct when the five protesters were shot. I remember, one, I still have video of a police officer coming from over the 4th Precinct walls with the ski mask on, literally moments and minutes before the gunman appeared. And I remember Snapchatting and not thinking anything of it, like, oh, this must just be a scare tactic because I'd seen so much at the 4th Precinct. And I had no clue that it would actually end up with five men getting hospitalized. Um, it was very shocking. I ended up doing an interview on Democracy Now!, talking about that experience, talking about my experience previ previously and my experience now. I grew up in a household 
where we had multiple individuals in our family that were a part of the police force. Growing up in Washington, D.C., where there's majority African-American, or historically it's been that way, it wasn't um, unique to see a black police officer that actually lived in the community. I have an uncle who served in the police force for 26 years until he retired, and he's still serving now. I have multiple cousins, and so, and even I had SROs in my building, however, they looked like me. I, a lot of the things that I've encountered being in Minnesota, a lot of the injustices that I've been fighting is very different than a lot of the things that I've traditionally seen. And a lot of the time it's so systemic. A lot of the time we're not communicating and talking about these issues. And so again, I wanna be a change agent, be the change that I wanna see. Um, during the course of this conversation, I hope that we can talk about and get to the result of one, understanding that communication truly is key and it builds relations. Also, this is not the blame game, this is the change game. And when we think about change, we need to think about ourselves and the position that we'll play in it. Will we be a change agent or will we be a parasite to society? Because when Martin Luther King said an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, he really meant it. You can't stand idly by and watch somebody else's oppression and not think that you're not watching the future oppression of yourself or those that you love. It's important to have compassion and empathy that goes way beyond what we can maybe recognize or what we've been experiencing. It's important to be able to see yourself and other human beings and get down to the root of human dignity and that every life matters and that sometimes we don't value black lives as much as we value others. And in order for us to thrive as a society, it's going to take us all. Thank you. Leslie did a great job guessing out. You did a great job guessing how long you had. I didn't tell you, so you have five to seven minutes to, to respond. Are, are there not good law schools somewhere warmer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my name is Brian Hubbard, and uh, my bio's in there. I won't, uh, I won't go into that, but I will share with you that, uh, as, as I tried to put in there, one of my goals, uh, this is a second career for me, so I spent many years in the nonprofit world, uh, as a youth worker and uh, spent lots of days at a summer camp leading songs for kids, etc. Uh, I love people and as I listed in the bio, um, my goal when I come to work every day is to take this uniform off and to uh, try and figure out ways that people see police officers as human beings, um, as members of a community, as fathers, sons, daughters, um, and, and so that's my goal. This, uh, maybe contrary to some of the, the public uh, sentiment that we hear right now, um, the current climate, if you will, is painful for most officers. It's a difficult time to be a police officer. And I don't say that looking for any pity. That's not the point. The point is to say that, uh, that the overwhelming number of the officers that I interact with are really good people who have really good hearts. Um, and do we need some change? Yep, I, I personally believe that we need to analyze some things, we need to look at things, we need to do some change. Uh, but I always start, and I try to encourage, we, we try to encourage our kids to start from the heart and work from there, and that's my goal. Uh, I have a 16-year-old uh, son, Marcus, and Marcus, uh, Heather, my wife, is sitting over here. Uh, she and I adopted Marcus, we brought him home from the hospital. Marcus is a uh, dark-skinned biracial kid. Uh, I'm a light-skinned biracial kid. And uh, as all of this drama around law enforcement has evolved in the last uh, couple years, 
Um, this, is, this isn't somebody else's problem for me because we have television, we have stuff, and so daily for years, the last number of years, we have conversations in our house about this idea of race versus policing and how does that work. And the conversation at some point boils down to there are some officers who are not doing things the way they should do them. Uh, they are not doing right. They are not treating people with respect, dignity, etc. And unfortunately, we have police because there are other people of all shades, of all hues, who don't, don't make the right choices, don't treat people with respect, don't do well. And um, I feel like when, when we talk about the challenge of this conversation, for me, the challenge is one of listening. I feel like as this conversation goes on, what we're missing is a listening ear. We've got a lot of talking ears uh, all around, um, and, and this is not, this is pointing fingers everywhere there is to point fingers. I don't think we're doing a great job of listening, which is why I feel like a forum like this is a great forum because uh, it's small, uh, there doesn't have to be any agendas, there can just be a dialogue about where are we and how can we do this better. And so I think opportunities like this are the way that we get to what I think is the change, which is someone's heart. And uh, so I appreciate everybody being willing to be a part of that discussion. Sorry. Right, planted right. Dr. Lewis. Um, well, good evening. Hello. I need a hey. 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 Awesome. Thank you. That helped me to get here. Um, very, very um, thankful to, to have an opportunity to um, sit with the rest of the panelists and also to um, hopefully be in conversation and dialogue um, with each of you. I apologize um, in advance. My um, voice is, is a, a little scraggly because I'm a little bit under the weather, but, um, but I'm here. Um, let's see. So in terms of what what my concerns are. Um, you know, first of all, I guess I, I'm starting with a place of um, what I'm pleased about, right? Um, and so part of what I'm pleased about is that we're having the conversation, right? Um, and that this work is, um, is really difficult work because it is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to come together um, when you're, if things are really charged. And there's a lot of things that have happened, both here um, locally in this community, in Minneapolis, throughout the state of Minnesota, throughout, um, throughout our country. And so there's like this sort of upheaval that happens as these incidents um, occur, which are um, traumatizing and a way to bring people together. But it's the in-between. It's what, what is happening in between um, uh, the incidents, right? That's actually the hard work, right? And so we can come together, we can have our opinions, but I worry about um, the sort of day-to-day, -day, um, how, how folks' lives are impacted um, on a daily basis. Um, we moved to uh, the Frogtown neighborhood in St. Paul uh, maybe about two years ago. And one of the reasons that we decided to move there is that we really wanted to be in a community where there were lots of young people um, who we could uh, build relationships with and that they could have an impact on our lives and we could have an impact on their lives, right? And um, 
You know, I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, not to be confused with St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you know, if you're not exactly sure, I will help you understand it's very, very different, right? I always say by a vow. Um, but, you know, definitely from East St. Louis, and wouldn't want to be from anywhere else. It really is my happy place. Um, and it's a place that if you have not been there and if you read about, then it is um, it's framed as this like really, really scary place, right? Um, where lots of crime happens and, and things happen and those, you know, that is part of the narrative. But the narrative for me, that's actually not what I see. That's not what I experience, right? That um, our te my teachers were amazing. Um, there were people who um, cared about us and who said, you know, had really high expectations. And I want to be, have that kind of influence on the young people that are in my community. The issue is, is that I really want to build community with those young people, preferably on Saturdays between two to five. They didn't really get that memo, okay? So they are like, okay, I met, um, I met a group of these young people, four little African-American boys, about eight years old. I was sitting on our porch last summer, and they were, um, and I heard some, some kids screaming, they were fighting, um, they were cursing, and I came outside and I said, hey, 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 young, you young kings over there, what are you doing? And they're like, who are you? I was like, I'm talking to you, and I don't have on any shoes, and if I have to come over there, it's gonna be a problem. Um, and so they kind of looked and, you know, were upset and, and they came over and they're like, he did this and he did that and we just kept talking and as we continued to talk, their innocence just began to come back, right? And um, they were little kids, you know, they were little kids and, and we started talking and I said, you know, what are you guys doing for the summer? And they're like, we don't have anything to do. You have some work for us to do? And I said, well, you could come back on Saturday around two o'clock. <laughs> 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 Thursday. They were like, no, we want to do something now. And I was like, oh, okay, well, there's, here's some sticks. You can pick up these sticks and, you know, whatever. So they did that, um, and I gave them a little money, and they came back every day, every day for the rest of the summer with more kids, you know. So now <laughs> our house is like the community center, right? And we have anywhere from 10 to 20 young people who come um, over uh, and they don't come on Saturdays between two to five. And they, and if we don't, if I don't answer one door, then they just knock on all of them. Um, and now they knock on the windows. And why do I tell you that story? To me, that's what this is about. It's about how are we going to build community in when it's inconvenient, right? Because it's actually not convenient. It sounds really lovely, like we should get together, we should, you know, um, build community. That's not what this work is about. It really is about how do we get to build relationships, um, have sort of unlikely relationships across differences um, in ways that, you know, the way the systems of oppression have been set up has been set up for us to not be connected to each other. And this work is really about um, reconnecting our humanity with each other and that it's not, and it's both looking at the places where, as an African-American woman, where I am in that target um, where, where racism is running in my direction, and also to look at the places where I have internalized my own oppressor patterns, right? And where, where do I take on those oppressor patterns 
And, you know, it's like that sounds so like, oh, well, oppressor patterns. Well, it's actually an oppressor pattern for me to think that I only can open that door on Saturdays between 2 to 5. Because those young people need me outside of that time, right? But because I'm sitting in a privileged space and that's not convenient for me, um, that is what this work is about, trying to figure out, you know, how are our lives different? How does this show up in a heated situation when we're out in the community? But how do we really build relationships with each other that's going to move things along? Glad to be here. Man, that was good. A great, I'm, I'm real grateful I have to follow that. Thank you very much, Dr. Joy. Um, I have to move when I talk. You can ask my coworkers, I can hardly sit still. So I'm going to move around a little bit talking. If I'm making you sick, just throw a shoe at me or something, I'll stop. Um, I'm Eric with Hopkins Police Department. I'm a captain with the police department. You'll see some uh, background on me in the bios. First of all, again, I'd like to thank Scott. Uh, this is, these forms are difficult to arrange, so great job, Scott. Thank you for having us. It's, it's a privilege to be here and an honor to be here with this esteemed panel. So I'd like to make sure to share that with you. I really like the title of this, this evening, Finding Common Ground. What we have in common is we're all in this together. This is everybody's business. It's not the cops versus the community or the county versus the community. This is community. We are community. We all build it. The two themes I'm going to touch on is trust and respect. For public safety, for government to be successful and efficient, there has to be trust. We need to work to gain the trust of the people we serve. I feel the first thing we can do to gain this trust is acknowledge that people have had some pretty bad experiences with cops, with the legal system. It might not be me, it might not be my partners, my agency, but someone somewhere could have hurt someone with a bad job, maybe a different country with a corrupt legal system. Maybe someone dating back to the 1950s has done something poor. But we need to acknowledge that people might not have had good experiences with the police. They might have been hurt. I also think we gain trust with conversations such as these. These are difficult conversations, but this is great. This brings us together, learning from both sides. I also think through the positive interactions with the community. Not everything has to be an enforcement contact. It's not only to show up to calls and arrest people. It's also doing the good outreach we do. I'll touch on a little bit of it. Also, it's having the good leadership in place for our various institutions, our various agencies. And so I take a quick moment to say thank you to the chief when he presented me with this opportunity. I was able to jump on it and, uh, and be up here. And uh, without him, it wouldn't be possible. So I would like to thank him for that. So a couple things about the Hopkins Police Department we're doing to gain trust is we're adopting a procedural justice approach, a guardian approach, not the warrior, the guardian, here to serve the people. In 2016, in April, Chief and I went down to Chicago and we learned a little bit more about procedural justice. It was, it was a lot of things we're doing already as an agency, but we made it more formal, we brought it back. We trained all of our supervisors in August, and at the end of this month, all of our officers will be trained in procedural justice. Just to touch on some things of procedural justice, the principles that we're embracing is first, transparency taking some of the mystery away from the police, where people know that we're working together and we're here for you. We have, we're doing lots of outreach to, to further this mission. We have a unit in our police department simply for outreach, to promote our, our, our mission, like I said. 
We have a JCPP program. It's a Joint Community Police Partnership program. And Julia Ross, she's trying to hide from me, but she's in here. She's with the Hennepin County. She's at our police department. She's a civilian employee that provides us with feedback to try to, try to give us information on how we can become more transparent, how we can better, we can make better connections with the community, bridge the gap, and be the agent of change. And part of her group is, one of her uh, things she does is called the MAC group, the Multicultural Advisory Committee. Every month, a group of um, diverse people from our, our city meet, and we run all of our policies and procedure changes by them and receive their feedback and hear community concerns. We also educate them on our practices to bring out to, the, to their respective communities. We are doing uh, community academies in which we're bringing people in to teach them more about what we do and, and countless youth programs. And th I'm not going to go on and on about those. You can go on our website. Our annual report's up there. It talks about all those kind of annual uh, those, uh, youth programs. Jim, good to see you. The second principle of uh, pursuit of justice is being impartial and being fair. With that, it's keeping people informed. Why are you doing this as the police? Why are you here? Talk to us. And that's what we do. We communicate with people. And with all of those contacts, it's being respectful all the time. Whether it's the person in the front lobby that someone comes in to report a crime, whether it's a traffic stop, whether it's a serious assault, you've got to be respectful. And that is at the forefront of all the things we do. The last principle I want to talk about pursuit of justice that we are, we are enacting is voice. Listening genuinely caring and receiving that feedback from the community, digesting it and working on it and acting on that. So in my closing few moments here, I'd like to leave you with a quote that I found that I thought was very applicable for today from Abraham Lincoln. America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. We're all in this together. We have to work together to improve. And I'm so glad we're doing this here tonight. Thank you very much, and I look forward to some good questions. Welcome, Mr. Burroughs. Thank you, thank you. Good evening. Now, you don't have to stand up because he stood up. Because the rest of them sat down. If the cop stands up, I'm going to All right, okay, up. all right. All right. Well, first and foremost, uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is James Burroughs. I'm the Chief Inclusion Officer for the state of Minnesota. Uh, I realized um, that uh, parent care is real important. I had to get my daughter from daycare in Brooklyn Park from St. Paul and get her over here, and she's playing in the nursery now. So apologize for being late, but family takes precedence, of course. Um, real quick, I'll make a quick statement about what my job is, then talk about what I do related to the topic tonight. Um, my job for the governor and the state of Minnesota is to increase access and opportunity and equity for those in the state. We have a great prosperous state when it comes to majority race folks. A lot of times those things that are happening for majority race folks are not happening for those uh, persons of color or persons with disabilities. Uh, my job is to fix that. Uh, on the workplace, my job is to create more diversity in the state, uh, about 20%. Uh, is the goal that the governor has and the state has as far as increasing the reflection of the diversity, racial diversity in our workforce. We're on 11% now. Uh, well, how we spend our money, we spend $2 billion a year. We spend, um, as an example, last year we spent, um, 2015, 135000 with African-American-owned businesses. So $2.5 billion 
African-American-owned business is 135. They're out there, we just have to be intentional about how we do that spend. And then also to engage in community, things like this and other things as well. So things happen with you rather than to you. One of my priorities right now is, if you haven't been down to the legislature lately, come on down. We need you to voice your opinion about what's going on. There are lots of different bills and conference committee things that are happening now. Um, they're going to impact you. So I'll just say that. They may impact you favorably, depending on what side of the, uh, the, the aisle you sit or what side of your income's on, or they may impact you negatively. Either way, come down, participate in these conference committees. What else do I do? Uh, the Governor's Council on Law Enforcement and Community Relations, he started right after the Philando Castillo shooting. Um, that's very important because during that time, it was my first two months, three months on the job, um, there were a lot of protests at the Governor's residence, a lot of things that he uh, was concerned about, and you probably heard him say about the racism that exists around that particular stop as well. And he caught a lot of flack from that, from law enforcement, from community, and what people said is you're making a decision and making a determination. What he was saying is, from what he had heard from folks like me and other African-Americans who are his leadership, that we get stopped like that all the time. If a taillight is out, we get stopped. If something's, uh, our license plate is running, we get stopped. Uh, nothing against the, the great town of St. Anthony, but I'll tell you a factual story. When I lived there 15 years ago, uh, when I used to go down that little strip on, I think it's St. Anthony Parkway, it was to Silver Lake Road, I used to get followed by the police every day. Every day I go home, they pick me up, follow me home, I park. Same routine. And after a while, they knew my car was there, they knew I was there. Now, was it because of my race? Uh, I didn't get out and ask anybody that question, but I've been black a long time, I've been black male a long time. Uh, I make assumptions. So a lot of times that, that would happen. Uh, so those things still happen. Um, the council's uh, effort is with about 32 members on the council. We have 15 voting members, 17 ex officio. We have law enforcement and community. We have um, members of the Chiefs Association, we have prosecutors on there, we have members of Black Lives Matter, we have members of the group Isaiah, or the NAACP, we have those from the police union, and the intentionality behind that was the governor wanted to say, let's get everybody in the room and come up with some common ground that we can look at and say, what kind of things that can we do together? We're not going to all agree, we know that already. Some of the two things that we've agreed upon so far that hopefully pass the legislature are uh, training dollars for officers related to things like unconscious bias or implicit bias, procedural justice, uh, de-escalation. Uh, that's in one of the bills uh, related to, and that's has you know, Republican and Democratic support uh, as well. Another thing is recruiting diverse officers. Uh, I come from a town called Detroit, Michigan. I went to school in Atlanta. I went to college, law school in D.C., and all of them were uh, brown cities, uh, lots of brown and black people. I came here in 1992, it wasn't as brown. Uh, nothing against you, but it wasn't as brown. So we want to make sure that we diversify our officer force, our workforce, as it relates to law enforcement as well, that will increase uh, that community impact. The reason I'm here today is uh, things like Jordan Edwards has to stop happening. Now, if you don't know who Jordan Edwards is, a 15-year-old that was killed recently in the Dallas suburb, um, and I'm proud of the police folks down there, because I think they fired the officer recently, I think so. And I'm not proud they got fired, but his story didn't match up to what he said happened. He said a car was backing down and aggressively coming towards him. They watched the video, the car wasn't anywhere near backing towards him. He shot and killed a 15-year-old. Uh, and that 15-year-old was in a car, um, not posing any threat to the officer. Now, do I think that the, uh, those things happen on an all-the-time basis? Absolutely not. 99.9% .9 of the cops that I know are doing a great job, doing great things in the community, and doing everything they need to do to protect and serve. 
Uh, I grew up in an environment where cops <clears throat> were a part of my life from here on up. But there are those that do things that need to have consequences after they are done. In this particular case, it was swift. They watched the video. They said, hey, that story doesn't match up. The young man is dead, and we need to address that. Now, one of the things that I hope to get out of this today is lots of questions from you, but also, too, to stay engaged. It's not as an incident occurs, but how do we, from a church perspective, from a community perspective, make sure that there's a community of prosecutors, police, um, people working government, citizens at NAACP, that we're all working together all the time. It's not just when something happens that we come together, but maybe there's a crisis response team that will address things when a crisis happens, but before that crisis happens, we're all getting to know each other. We're in our communities, working together collectively, uh, maybe even coming to different churches. I invite you to Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. It's on the north side. My pastor is Reverend Albert Gallman, Jr., who's back in town. He used to be a pastor, but now he's coming back. Um, I'd love to see us not have Sunday be the most racially segregated day in the week, which it is. You know, I was raised Lutheran in Detroit, so imagine that, <laughs> you know. Uh, so now I'm Baptist. I converted but um, one of those things is we want to make sure that there's some interracial and also intercultural discussions before these things happen. Because when they happen, people get um, um, passionate about their cause or what their issue is. And I don't know who can be passionate about the death of a child or somebody's child or a family. And also, too, who can be compassionate about an officer who has to be going through hell and torment if you had to use your gun to shoot somebody. That's not an easy thing to do as well. So... I'll cut it short there, and uh, I thank you for having me late as it be. So, thank you. Thank you. Well, the officer and then James started it, so most lawyers talk better when they're, talk, when they're standing. But I promise I won't talk longer because I'm standing. Um, Pastor Scott, thanks for having me. This is a Norwegian Lutheran. I know I can speak only the truth, particularly from up here. Um, <laughs> Superintendent, I don't know which school district you're a superintendent of anymore, but they're both great <laughs> districts, and we're glad to hear. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm pleased because, Leslie, you had a, some wonderful comments, and this discussion, for me, has also taken a path at your school, and Mike Goldstein, chief up in Plymouth, was part of that panel and asked me to come tonight, and I'm glad to be here. Um, we need to have these dialogues. We need to have these discussions. You asked what are the things that I've learned. I'm the person who made the decision not to charge the police officer in Minneapolis in the tragic death of Jamar Clark. My job is to decide whether or not there's sufficient admissible evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he violated the law. The facts were not there, and I didn't charge. Uh, John Choi in Ramsey County had the very difficult decision in the Yanish case. I spent some time with him and his evidence. He had an obligation to charge, and he did. And the question for us as prosecutors is, is there sufficient evidence? I'm also the prosecutor who charged and successfully convicted Lance Scarcella, the white supremacist who inappropriately went to the 4th Precinct site with his guns bragging on video, I'm locked and loaded. I'm going to raise hell tonight. That's not acceptable in this society. There are some things that simply aren't acceptable. That's not. It's a very difficult prosecution. He got 12 years, and he deserves every minute. And that's the dilemma the prosecutors are in. 
What have I learned from these processes? Really three things that I'd like to talk about for tonight. First is the whole question of accountability of those who are in positions who have to make these decisions. Number two is transparency. And third is the object of listening. As my father said to me before, you don't learn many things when you're using the muscles between your nose and your chin. And dad was right on a lot of things, including that one. Accountability. The reason that the grand jury process didn't work anymore because it was an anonymous 23 people. You would think on the face of it, having 23 citizens make the factual determination whether the law was violated makes more sense than one elected prosecutor along with folks who work with them. But people didn't know who they were. And if you use a grand jury, you can't release the evidence that you present to the grand jury by the rules. It's an antiquated process and it doesn't work. So when we announced our decision, I put up on the website not only my speech, a more detailed factual examination, all the police reports, the autopsies, the forensic evidence, and the videos. And in the first week, 80,000 people went on our website to read the police reports and the speeches. And 360,000 people watched the videos. Now that's transparency. Now, People could look and review that and said, I made a mistake. But they know what I had before me, um, and, and so they can make their own choice whether I did my job and the people did their job. That's accountability and transparency. The final thing I want to raise for tonight is um, we need to listen, particularly those of us who are privileged enough to have work for you, the voters and the citizens. We need to hear what you're saying. We need to get out of our own comfort zone and understand that what we say and we talk about doesn't necessarily only impact me, it impacts a lot of other people. And I need to hear people in the language that they're speaking. You know, James has been a black man all his life. I've been a white Norwegian Lutheran all my life. And I hear and focus through those lenses. I've got to get out of my comfort zone. And I've got to really listen. So those are the three concepts. I think would be most valuable as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Superintendent. Thank you. I, I want to report for the record I spoke for less than five minutes. <laughs> I am not going to argue with the prosecuting attorney. Um, so I want to remind all of you to uh, uh, prepare questions, and our ushers are, can you wave again? Where are you? and uh, to prepare those, and we're going to continue on. All of you, really, in your presentation, really set out some visions and aspirations for this community dialogue, and some of the ideals you used were uh, conversation, trust, care for the youth, um, communication to understand, communication to love one another within a community, um, guardian, respect, um, Caring, empowering, and engagement. I think one of the things that was I heard in all of yours was listening. And um, so you really have set out some aspirations, some goals on, uh, on the conversation in our culture and how that should unfold. So I'd like you to think more about today and uh, spend some time talking about how would you describe or define the current situation regarding public safety and racial justice in either your sphere of influence or in the community, whether that's the county, whether it's the local 
the local cities, or the broader region we call uh, the metropolitan area. So um, whoever wants to start. Okay. Yeah, you lied. It must be the seventh commandment. Is that one? I think we got it going now. You win. I, okay. <laughs> I, I win. Okay, great. Um, I'll start us off here. Um, I'll speak to Hopkins. Okay, I can speak to what we do in Hopkins. Um, I think we do a good job as a police department trying to connect with all members. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, is we do a lot of community outreach. We, every day we're doing some outreach in a non-enforcement context to try to connect, to try to improve our equity, to try to improve our inclusion, things we can do better. And now, we're doing a good job, I feel, but we can get better. There's no doubt about it. And that comes with listening and hearing the feedback on our, during our outreach efforts. I also, we're, we're going across and we're having these uncomfortable conversations, one of which I'd like to bring to light is recently, as Jen and I spoke here uh, before this forum, is we heard there was a, a lot of concern in the Hispanic community in Hopkins about some of the um, executive orders that came out. So um, politically charged, difficult, we presented to a, a large population of Hispanic, uh, Spanish-speaking individuals up at Eisenhower to try to help calm them down a little bit, to try to help bring some light to the immigration situation, um, to try to tell them that, hey, we're here for you, and we're not going to be knocking on your door to ask you for immigration papers and deport you. So we're, we're trying. We're trying to improve, um, improve our situation. It's, it's really just a, it's, it's a top-down approach. Our, our whole agency needs to buy into it. I, I feel like our officers are really doing a good job listening on calls, being compassionate, going above and beyond. Uh, the chief's motto here is exceptional service is the expectation, not the exception. And that goes down to all the officers. You get out there and you do a good job. And you show people you care. Um, so that's some of the things we're doing um, in Hopkins, I can speak to. Okay, we're going to hold you to about three minutes in your response so we can get the audience questions in. So go ahead. Uh, I think the the... I'm going to piggyback on what Dr. Joy said. For me, the and I've shared this with uh, lots of my partners, I, I think that we are in a period of calm right now. And I would agree that that's when the hard work happens, but I don't believe that's when really the work happens. I believe that uh, when, when you look at the trend of the last number of years, um, things seem to simmer up when we have these events that happen. And everybody's charged, and back to my point of listening, nobody listens at that point. If, if, uh, I'm getting, if I'm in an argument with someone, once we start raising our voice, all I'm thinking about is what's the louder thing I'm going to say. Um, and so I, I think that's what happens during those events. Uh, and so we're in between those events. Unfortunately, I think that's the statement. I hope that's not the statement, but I think that's the statement. Now is the time when it's calm, when we have to be forging the path, when we have to be doing the hard work that Dr. Joy talked about um, to build connections, to build understanding in the work that is being done on all sides of this issue to further it, and then also to figure out what we can do to continue to push it forward, not waiting until we have a new 
thing to put on a banner or not waiting until we have a new problem that we have to address in law enforcement. Uh, that, that period of calm is to our advantage and should be advantageous that, that we should be taking advantage of that. Oh, God, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I would maybe do a reframe. I think that it appears to be calm, right? I think that it appears to be calm, meaning that there's not um, right now in our, in our community, but, but in, our, in the larger community, right, um, there's constantly things that are happening, right? And so, but when it's not happening like right outside of our door, it appears that things are calm. And that, um, that's I think a, um, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous place to, to be because that's when we get disengaged and we go back to our lives as they have been, and we think that things don't necessarily um, have anything to do, that, that might not have anything to do with me, or maybe it'll just go away. But it's really during those times that it's important for us to reach out. Um, what I would, what I would uh, also say to that is, how am I, um, I, I told you the story about being in my neighborhood, and that's an important place of, um, my social position, but also um, really having a, a much larger view as well. Um, I have been, for the last two years, the uh, lead facilitator in Minneapolis between um, the police uh, department, the mayor, um, the city attorney, Black Lives Matter, and NAACP, and Neighborhoods Organizing for Change. And that work started um, about four months before uh, Jamar Clark was killed. Right, and so they're, they're and, and this is a small group, small group of folks, about 14 folks who, as you can imagine, was difficult to come to the table, but they came, right? And the group was like ready to move forward. Let's go to the next level. And then four days later, Jamar Clark was killed, right? It is the work in between. It's the work that, that people were willing to come to the table when there wasn't an incident, and that even though things still were really difficult, um, particularly during the fourth precinct occupation, but because those relationships were being built um, during that time that appeared to be calm, but at least folks were saying, look, we need to be prepared for that. And so, you know, I, I come, you know, sort of bearing the good news, and it's like that, oh, cool, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And, and we are in both, and how do we actually hold those contradictions? Mr. Lieutenant, uh, I don't think it's so quiet. It's not quiet in my world. And what we're seeing is still the inequities that exist in the system. We're still seeing people without opportunities for jobs or school. We're seeing distant parents that are not working with their kids in the way that our parents fortunately worked with us. Uh, let me just tell you a little story about why I talked about listening. Uh, when I became county attorney in 1991, 2% of our attorneys were people of color. Today it's 20%. But we're not done. And after Jamar Clark, uh, I asked a number of the African-American prosecutors and staff to get to talk with me, to share thoughts, to go back and forth. And I was sharing with them that I was disturbed that some folks didn't seem to be hearing me when I talked. 
They didn't have to agree, but they didn't seem to be hearing me. And one of the people said to me very candidly, who's been with us for 25 years, says, Mike, you need to understand. You don't have to agree with me. You need to understand there's a lot of black people, particularly young black men, who think the law is the white man's law. The law protects the whites and is prejudiced against blacks. Whether that is true or not, it doesn't matter. That's what they think, and that's why they're not hearing you, and you need to develop a better message to communicate to them as well. Now, that was pretty sobering, but I think she was right. And so I think that's some of the dialogue and the discussion. I mean, I do two or three of these a month, and I value them because I learn something every time. But here was a person I worked with every day really talking at me and making me listen, and I think that'll make me a better person. So uh, real quick, under three minutes, hopefully. Uh, heard a stutter on the radio was coming in here. There were a 1,000, I think, police shootings in 2016, and there were 13 times that a cop was prosecuted. The year before, there were about 1,000 in that area, and there were um, 18 uh, cops prosecuted. Uh, what happens in my community is everything can't be the officer acted, acted reasonably. Everything can't be it's always the person's fault. Everything can't be we look towards the person's uh, education or background or how they did in school or what gang they were supposed to be in or what they did wrong, and that's why they got shot. Um, so I'd say it's not a calm right now. It's a we need to do something because when the next thing happens, the storm that has been brewing will get even worse. Uh, I want to speak on what the officer said too. And we, this is why we got to change churches every Sunday. If you go to my <laughs> church, you're going to hear some loud singing. You got some people passing out in the, in the, in the, in the aisleway. You're going to have some people screaming, Jesus' name, hallelujah. But we're talking to the same Lord, same guy. Here you might have that, I'm not sure, but I bet you, <laughs> I bet you probably don't have it as intense as we do. Every Sunday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we still need to communicate. So when it gets to a point where I'm talking in a passionate way, I'm not being disrespectful, but I'm just talking to you in a passionate way how I communicate. How that person talked to Mike and said, Mike, you need to listen. A lot of times we tune out. Um, a lot of times if I get intense or if I say I'm you know, very intense or passionate about this, I'm a big black man. Sometimes people get intimidated by that. They get scared by that. What I need you to do is say, you know what? That's just James, you're passionate about what he's thinking about. Unless I physically attack you, which I'm not going to, we got to get past that. And also, too, it's in the room. Let me just say it. This is Minnesota Nice. I've been here 25 years. Minnesota Nice used to be a good thing, maybe one day back in the day. But now, in communities of color, we look at it as a problem. This is the way we don't talk about things. We have to be calm. We have to sit back. We have to be on our hands and not intimidate people. People are tired of getting shot. They're tired of young black men ending up dead. I'm tired of it. I pray every day nothing else happens in Minnesota because with this council going on, if something else happens, all the work we've done for the last nine months, people say, you know what, that doesn't matter because here we go again. So I think it's a time of urgency and it's a time we got to communicate better around these things around communities. And thank you. One of the topics that I mentioned earlier is how communication is key and is used to build relationships. A lot of time we don't have the communication and we don't have the relationship 
and it's not any fault of our own. America, in my opinion, has never experienced authentic integration. We try to assimilate people and force them into our paradigms and our structures and our systems. We allow a couple of people to enter our schools and our churches and our neighborhoods, and we call it integration. I think it's time for us to shift the narrative and start to tell the true stories. A lot of the time, the people who are experienced in the situations aren't given the mic. And speaking of communications, I'm from Washington, D.C., so I communicate a little differently sometimes. And when I came to Minnesota, I had to speak on injustice that I saw because it is real. Again, you have to decide whether you are going to be a change agent or a parasite to society. And I don't want to be. I want to be a change agent. I want to be able to lift up my voice. And to answer your question, the current state, we're in a state of emergency. We're in a crisis. People should be moving with urgency, and they're not. And they're not because it's black lives, and we don't, we don't value black lives in America. And I know that's hard for people to hear, and I know it touches your guilt, and you know, but it's the reality. In America, whiteness is looked at as an asset, and blackness is looked at as a liability. That's why you see so many black people with even self-hate. And we have to acknowledge the history of America. We have to acknowledge the history of police officers. We have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge the fugitive slave laws, right, that was against black people in America. We have to recognize that police we're patrolling the neighborhood for black slaves. Like, we have to acknowledge this to understand just how deeply rooted this is, and that this is not just on an individual basis. This is a systemic issue. And it wasn't, it didn't brew overnight, and we're not gonna get rid of it overnight. But if we continue to leave the elephant underneath the table, it's gonna pop out and kill us all. And so I honestly think that at some point, we have to open our eyes, we have to open our mouths, and we also have to make sure that it's in our actions. Because a lot of people in Minnesota, you know, Minnesota is a little different from the South. It's not very different. But how it is different is because, one, I think that people do have good intentions to a certain extent. However, I couldn't care less about your intentions when your impact is detrimental, when it's causing people lives. I was at Ole Miss University in Mississippi before I came to Minnesota doing a program. Someone hung a noose around James Meredith's neck, the first black student to integrate Ole Miss school. That's blatant racism. Here in Minnesota, you see the institutionalized racism. I work in Minneapolis public schools, and I'll talk more about that later, but the reality is we're hanging a noose around black kids' neck, and we don't want to talk about it. And happy birthday to Jamar Clark. Today would have been his 26th birthday. And that's something that we need to talk about because he was a human being. And we try to dehumanize black men and women every chance we get, and it's a problem. And I believe that everybody's better than the worst thing they've ever done, and not as bad as the worst thing. So not as bad as the worst thing that they've ever done, and not as good as the best thing that, that they've ever done. I appreciate you all for being on this panel today. Um, Mike Freeman, I was at the first event at St. Thomas, and it was an amazing event. And I think that we do need to have more of these conversations, right? When we talk about the community, the perception is a lot of people did not agree with your decision, right? I was one of those people. I did agree with your decision to get rid of the grand jury process, right? And so the reality of it is, is that we need to have more of these conversations so I can understand where you're coming from, so you can understand where I'm coming from, because this system is way bigger than all of us. You're not the problem, you're not the problem, you're not the problem, I'm not the problem. It's the systemic issues that we perpetuate as people. And I believe that people are good and there's other things going on that's way bigger than humanity that we need to address. I'm done.
Okay, so uh, from the audience, um, this is for the whole panel. Um, as a white person with a lot of privilege, whose various communities are predominantly white, how do I proactively build relationships with people of color without, uh, without feeling disingenuous or representing, representing a burden to those people? I hear, it, I hear and understand it's not their job to educate me about how they experience racism. Amen, whoever that person was. I love that question. I think it's important to come to the table very humble and recognizing that this is someone's everyday life and they don't get to pick or choose when they want to deal with the issue or not. Also recognize that we are all in this together. And so people want your help. People want us to work together. You can come work with the Minneapolis NAACP, of course, and there are a number of different organizations, and you have people up here who are allies and that can help you figure out where do you fit. Because you're right, it's not the responsibility of black people to educate white people on our oppression, but it is the job of white people to go and educate their fellow white person in America of these injustices to whom much is given, much is required and expected. There's a privilege to have knowledge and to be aware. There's so many people that will never be um, privy to have these conversations and to listen in because we are still so segregated. And so when you gain knowledge, you have a duty to go share the knowledge with your peers and come in not trying to save these communities because they're not in need of saving, but you can invest so that they can invest in themselves. You know, I would just, um, I would add that, you know, the way that systems of oppression, as I said, were set up, they're set up so we would not be connected to each other. That's actually, whoever came up with it, you know, um, unfortunately, it was well done. Well done, right? We have, it, but it also was pretty ridiculous that it was like, okay, if I'm a black person, I'm not supposed to be connected with, um, with white folks, right? We have to be just as ridiculous in the other direction, right? So if, in fact, we have been told and taught not to be connected to each other, we have to go after and try to be connected with each other just based on that. You just have to start there. And it's going to be awkward. It's going to be um, uncomfortable. And you have to think about what kind of positions can you, I'm sorry, what kind of situations can you put yourself in where you can actually back the leadership of people of color, where you can actually not go to be like you have the answer or this is how it's supposed to be or you know, let me just help you. No, just go. There's so many things that are happening that you will build relationship by showing up and coming with a servant's heart of being able to say, you know what, I'm just going, I'm going to be here and I'm going to try to figure out you know, how I can build real, authentic relationships. Just like, you're build, just like you have real relationships with other people in your life, right? But thinking about that also on that individual basis, but how, in fact, might you be able, I talk about, talk about it as how do I use my special powers for good, right? So how, how is it that the places that I have privilege that I can show up and I can be in and I can use that influence in a way, but to be able to back the leadership of, of the folks who, who may not have been, been um, in a position to, to get that, um, <clears throat> to be able to, to be the ones who are leading. 
And so I think it's really important that we have to just say, you know, I'm gonna be just that ridiculous on the other way, and I'm gonna go after folks. It's like, I don't, who do I have in my life? You know, who's missing? And how am I going to just keep showing up and, um, you know, and, and build those relationships? But it, again, it's not gonna be convenient. It's not gonna happen on Saturdays between two to five. Those are great answers. You need more people of color in your life. Uh, and it doesn't have to be as an ally of social justice. I drove by interlocking golf course. I've played golf for the last 15 years. Think I've ever played interlocking golf course? Think everybody's invited me to play interlocking golf course? I've been in these high level positions for a while, but those people who play there, mostly white, haven't said James Burroughs come on out and play. Uh, a lot of times we get comfortable on our weekends with our kids too. We take them to the same places all the time and we don't see a person of color, you don't think about it. You don't even say, okay, this is not unusual, this is just the way Minnesota is. One of the things you gotta do is get out of that comfort zone and not just invite people to your area, but go to where they are. Uh, I really want you to be intentional about maybe going to a place where there are more people of color than you and just learning. Maybe it's a museum, maybe it's listen to some music, maybe it's to go to church. I keep talking about church, I'm in a church. Go to church, other things like that. That's important because when you build those social relationships, then when you come to be an ally for me, I'm building a trust with you like, okay, you're here for the real thing. Not here we go again, this is another white person who's gonna come champion my cause and say this is great and support James because this is the social justice thing. You gotta build those relationships. And I tell folks who are you know, black as well and brown as well, we gotta do the same. You know, for a long time I didn't play golf. I didn't do the things that quote unquote you're supposed to do. But now I do those things because I like them, but I make intentional effort to make sure that people get to know who I am. Um, I, I did something the other day. I said, you know what? We need to have a play date. My daughter, who's African-American daughter, she's five. She needs to be have some play date. I see some kids in here. We need a play date. We need to get together, get to know you. My kids will get to know you. Because if that doesn't happen, they grow up with the same perceptions that we see outside in the world, and those perceptions are negative. Those perceptions are um, uh, racial, um, epithets being uh, put out at the St. Olaf that happened at, you know, American University, a banana being hung and a deuce being hung about a black sorority there. That happens, and our kids don't get a chance to, to dispel that rumor if they don't get a chance to know each other. So I say on a social perspective, get out of that comfort zone and make sure that they're intentional as well. Okay, um, this is for um, Brian Hubbard and Eric Husfold. What did the Edina and Hopkins Police Departments learn from the Edina arrest, arrest of a black pedestrian that went viral? What are you proactively doing to try to ensure that a situation like Michael Brown, Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, and others don't happen in our communities? Let me go backwards to the comb thing because I hit a chord and I, don't, I just want to make clear, I don't think I'm saying anything different. I might have said it a different way. I believe that the calmness allows us to move to a false sense of security about what actually is going on because it allows us to do, even to the last question, it allows us to get back into our house and live our own little life and not worry about a life that's going on beyond us. And so I, I, am, I certainly am not underestimating what I think needs to be done. Quite to the contrary, now is the time it needs to be done because we can have level heads to have the conversation. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
do this as, as uh, delicately as I can. Uh, we have a pending lawsuit with the city, and so there's not much that I'm going to be able to say about that particular incident. Um, what I will say is, I believe that we have a department and an administration that uh, is striving for excellence. We are striving to do better. Are we great? No. Why? Because we're 53 human beings who every day are, are doing lots of stuff right and doing some stuff wrong. And we do stuff wrong that never makes the news. Our officers, me, we do stuff, we get called on the carpet often. I, as a supervisor, I take calls often from people who say, this happened, I'm complaining about this. And what we try to do in our department is to go, and we're going to look at that and, and try and do better by that. Um, and so what I will say is that we take the incident that happened in the fall in that same vein to say, are there, what are the pieces that we can learn, understanding that there are multiple sides to a story. And, um, you know, part of the struggle for law enforcement is, um, I, think, I think almost any officer that's worth their weight would tell you, give me a body camera right here, right now, please. Because when we moved to having squad cameras, uh, more often than not, when I get a complaint, I can look at that squad camera and say, this is what happened. Either don't do that again, or you did that right. And I'm sorry that you didn't like it, but that was the correct action to take. And I think most, again, most officers who take pride in the uniform say, yep, I, there's nothing that I'm doing that I'm embarrassed about. Doesn't mean I do it all right. Oh, I have stuff to learn. I got to do better, um, but I'm working on it. So it's not a direct answer to the question other than to say that I believe we have a department that has a culture that says, we are striving for excellence. Excellence doesn't, is not just a number. Excellence is not just a, 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 an annual report that gives you a bunch of statistics. Excellence is, we believe that we're here to serve a community, uh, all parts of that community. And part of that is, is the efforts that we take to build relationships. Uh, part of that is even just in how we have contacts with interaction. I tell my officers all the time, Part of what you get to do to change this, this discussion right now is each interaction, be it a traffic stop, be it being at a park and talking to somebody, being whatever it is, that moment is an opportunity for you to change the interaction. I'm spending this week teaching uh, crisis intervention to officers, and you've heard a lot about CIT in the news, and uh, I've spent this whole week doing that. And one of the things we talk about when we talk about with people with mental illness is the contact that you have with someone who's having a severe mental illness episode, how that goes reflects how it goes in the future for that person. That person's experience is going to be based on that. If the experience was good, the next time at least they can start from a spot of, that person was respectful and decent to me. Um, and so I, I think that's a piece. The last piece I would say is that the, you know, our city has embarked, um, our city leadership has embarked on a large endeavor uh, to try and look at race and equity issues broadly within the community, within the city, within the city systems, the structures, the elected process, but also in the community as a broad. And, uh, and the police department is an integral part of that process because we have to be, because we want to be. Um, and I believe that we go into that uh, with, with the recognition that some of that's going to be a lens back on us going, we need to change this. We need to do this different. And if I may, I'm going to go over time, but I just, one quick story that I want to share to this idea of listening. I, I have a, a uh, my uncle lives on the north side, 
uh, has been there forever. I kind of say his particular block is really struggling. And he's, I, I, he's Custard's last stand. He and his neighbor have went, that's it, I'm here. I grew up here. This is where I'm going to be. And he's, he, I would say, <laughs> I like to say he's beat his son into submission. Uh, I mean, my cousin is a, is a good kid, but he's a large, um, he's a large black male. And what I say to officers is, when he's driving his car, 10 o'clock at night on his way home, and he's on his way and he makes a left and makes a right, and that squad car shows up behind him and turns left and right, following him, the hair on the back of his neck stands up. And what I say to the officers is, sometimes an officer response is, why? He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, understood, but his perception of what's happening right now is a real perception, and I can't discredit it. I don't know where it came from, I don't know where it stemmed from. And so where the burden lies on the officer in that case, because maybe that traffic stop's going to happen, the burden is when you get up there recognizing that that dynamic is at play and recognizing part of your job is to de-escalate, if you will, that situation to allow that contact to happen professionally. The flip side of the discussion is that I say unapologetically to anybody, until you've stopped a car at 2 o'clock in the morning by yourself with dark tinted windows and three people in there, you can't say to me that I don't have a right to be a little nervous on my initial approach. And so my hope is that when I get up to that car, that people are, are prepared to have a discussion with me, at least initially. They don't have to like it. We can, they can give it back to me. But at least as I'm coming up there, because I have a wife and three kids that I want to come home to, you can't say it's irrational for me to have a fear. And so to that point of listening, we both have a fear. The problem on this particular discussion is Cops die all the time, and, and so we're nervous about it because I have a responsibility, and it's to her, and I'm not going to apologize to anybody for that. On the same token, that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for behavior or action, and to your point, we have to recognize that part of that hair in the back of the neck for my cousin is stemmed in something, and it's stemmed in something that's been going on for a long time, and we need officers to understand that. So I, I went off topic, but I believe that we will... Um, improve from that incident as I do believe that we improve from lots of incidents. Eric? That's a good question and uh, there's obviously a lot of high-profile incidents going on across the nation and we see them frequently. In Hopkins we are doing things on the technical side and our human side too. Technically we are looking at improving our technology, we're exploring the idea of body cameras, improving our squad cameras. We are training in implicit bias training. We have all the officers trained on that. Procedural justice training I already mentioned. And training goes on and on and on and on. We're always training, trying to make ourselves better. We're, we're reviewing some incidents across the nation and using those during our use of force scenarios so we can improve on our capabilities. Also, the CIT training, crisis intervention training, by 2018, all our officers, all our officers will be trained on that to de-escalate first, and other options second. On the other side of it, we are really working to change the narrative of distrust. Like I said, as I mentioned in my opening statements, every day we're doing outreach to show our community that we're here for them. And what we're doing is genuine. And if we have to investigate something, we might have to talk to you, but you better believe it's going to be with respect. And if it's not, 
we'll review that and make sure that happens you know, next time. Uh, we take all of our complaints seriously. If someone has a complaint, no matter if it seems frivolous or not at face value, we're going to look into it no matter what and keep that complainant updated. Also, we're focusing a lot on our youth. We're really trying to engage our youth a lot to provide the mentorship. And so in the hope in the years to come, they say, hey, you know what? The cops are all right. And let's, let's, let's have a good relationship. We're taking fishing, we're going shopping, all these activities, and the cops love it. Um, I think the kids like it a lot too. And um, yeah, so we're doing those kind of efforts. So good question, thank you. Thank you. This is, this is for uh, Dr. Lewis and Ms. Redmond. Um, you had mentioned, both of you had talked about systems of oppression that you discussed. And uh, this uh, uh, person's asking uh, more about that and like to understand more about what you mean by systems of oppression. When we talk about systems of oppression, you could almost look at any institution in America. A lot of the time we like to deal with symptoms instead of looking at the root causes. And if we look at the foundation and the structures of a lot of systems, they're rooted in racism. And a lot of time, and especially in Minnesota, no one wants to be racist. And I talked about it earlier, it's not the blame game, it's the change game, but in order for a doctor to heal you, he has to actually know what's wrong with you and he has to acknowledge it. He can't continue healing symptoms that have nothing to do with the root cause. When we look at the education system, a really good book for you to look at is Carter G. Woodson, The Miseducation of the Negro. I would like to write a book one day called The Miseducation of the People because the book did an amazing job. However, we're all miseducated because our public education system has miseducated everyone. The narratives that are being projected show certain individuals as heroes and other people as villains, and they traditionally tend to be white people as the heroes and black people as the villains. And we've all been socialized. It's not just white people, it's black people that feel it as well. When you're, contest when you're consistently taught and told that you're not good enough, that, every that we criminalize blackness, right? When we look at Minneapolis public school system, 39% of the population is black, but they represent 75% of those individuals being disciplined. You look at the white population in Minneapolis public schools, it's 32%, and they represent almost 7% or something like that. And a lot of the time we'll look at the effect, we won't look at the cause, we won't look at the fact that black children are being disproportionately impacted. And when we look at that black child, we don't see a child because we've already criminalized them from birth. We've already began to prepare their prisons that are making people millions, that are building people houses and giving them jobs and helping people to thrive in life by building these institutions of slavery by another name. The 13th Amendment didn't abolish slavery. It just transformed the system and how we look at it. And so I would say look at every institution in America and you will see the systemic racism. It's just about what you're looking for. Thank you for that. Um, you know, there's, this is a topic that I could talk about for a very long time, but what I will do is just try to um, share in a very simplistic way in that really systems of oppression um, are really grounded in who gets access to goods, services, opportunities based on privilege. Pretty simple, right? And, and that we can, sometimes it's hard for us to say, well, you know, 
we don't want to talk about individually, you know, how we might um, benefit or say, you know what, nobody wants to be like, I'm not racist, I'm not classist. Okay, um, there are benefits that we get depending on where we are. Nothing to do with something that we did or earned, but it just came to us, right? We, um, because of who we were born to, where we were born, what color of our skin, all of those different things. And so it's like, there's a, there's a video, which I really, really love, that um, shows these folks who are running track, right? And it's like, you know, you're running track, but if you started 500 feet before I even came to the race, then how am I ever going to catch up? That really is what systems of oppression are. Now here's the thing, we can't do something about, it's not our fault, what happened before, you know, how those uh, systems were put in place. But it is our responsibility, right? It is our responsibility to actually shift and change and say, how am I going to look at the places where I may have had privilege? And again, you know, I think that this is good since we are, we are um, at a church. This is actually a, um, a, a really quick one that I share. I mean, it's probably about 17 years or so ago, and I was at a, um, at a workshop, and it was on um, social justice and spirituality. And um, my now good friend, Dr. Jamie Washington, Reverend Dr. Jamie Washington, was doing a um, presentation. And we weren't friends at the moment. I did not know him. I, I, I thought that his work was great. But anyway, I'm in the room. It's 30 folks or so in the room. And it's mostly um, a, a, a room full of white folks and maybe three people of color. And Jamie says, I would like for you to raise your hand if you are a Christian, right? So I raised my hand. And he said, great. For the rest of this workshop, I only want you to think about yourself and sit in your privilege as a Christian. So I raised my hand again, and I said, I'm black. He said, I can see that. Um, and I was like, okay. He said, but we're not, we're not actually interested in that for this workshop. We only, I only want you to just sit in your privilege as a Christian. And I'll tell you, I was really mad about that was really, really, really upset. And I was like, who is this black man? Like, who does that? How are you gonna come to Minnesota, you know, in a room full of white folks and then try to tell me, don't pay attention to the fact that I'm black? This is ridiculous. And I don't know, um, probably my higher power got to me and I just sat there and um, I sat with that discomfort and was able to sit in my privilege as a Christian and to think about what are the privileges that I have? How are the holidays set up? What's on the calendar? What are all these things that are organized? And the way privilege is set up is set up so you don't notice it. That's the whole point. That's why it's, it's there. You never noticed that it was there. And that's the point. How do we actually look at the things that we are afforded um, and how might that be um, actually oppressing other folks? And how might we be able to switch those things? So we're going to give uh, one last question, and uh, we're going to hold it to about uh, two minutes because we're getting towards the towards eight o'clock. But it's a great question. Um, in the spirit of finding common ground um, and listening openly to the opinions that may be different from our own, your own, what is one strategy you use for interrupting the anti-police and the anti-black narrative?
So I'm constantly speaking about the different perspective and the different lens that we look out of. I'm constantly urging people to be the change that they want to see. I spoke at my high school graduation. My baby sister was graduating at the time too last summer. And I talked to the youth about really activating their passion and their purpose. And I told them, sometimes your purpose isn't what you love. Sometimes it's what you hate. Right? If you think that the prosecutors aren't doing a good job, go become a prosecutor. If you think the police officers aren't doing a good job, go become a police officer, go become a judge. Oh, FYI, I'm always promoting people to be prosecutors too. I think that they have a lot of discretion, a lot of power, and a lot of good people, are, the first thing they think of is being a public defender. And I'm like, wait, that doesn't sit right with me, right? If we think that the system needs to be balanced, and if you are a great person, we need great people on both sides, right? We need to know that these are public servant jobs on both sides. We talked about police officers earlier. I tell people, like, I honor police officers, I value police officers, but so does society, right? Can you imagine a world, so um, the Star Tribune wrote an article where they were saying since 2000, and it was like since 2000, there have been 148 killings at the hands of police officers um, with civilians who were unarmed, I believe. And basically, the first charge since 2000, I believe, was the one with Philando Castile. And I said in my head, imagine if there had been 148 killings of police officers at the hands of civilians and not one of them were charged. You can't imagine that because it wouldn't exist in America because we value police officers. And so that's the thing that we need to think about. When we say that we don't value black people, we're not automatically saying bump the police officers. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that there's systemic things at play here. Either you are actively changing them or you are perpetuating them. And so I don't just talk about this and my siblings will tell you, whoever I'm in front of, I speak from the other perspective, right? I'm always trying to actively engage people to think from the other side. A lot of the time we have to recognize that people want to love us, people want to be loved, and they are a product of their environment. And so that's what I do. Let me, let me reinforce what you just said. Um, police and prosecutors and judges represent all the people. They should. But if we grew up as a Norwegian Lutheran, it doesn't mean we understand all the people. People on my staff taught me a lot of things I didn't know. My first chief deputy was a really competent professional woman and I thought I was pretty cool and treated women appropriately. And I noticed that some of my reactions to things she said, I took as a privileged male. She taught me a lot. My Ecuadorian chief of staff now has taught me a lot about Spanish-speaking folks. So you got to get out of your silo and into other people's minds and hearts. I did it easy, um, and I wish I should do a lot more. But I think we'll do build a better society if we can do that. I was in a uh, workshop recently um, on, our, on some of our equity efforts, and um, the uh, presenter painted this picture to me, which, which really was a game changer. You know, you have those moments where it's like, I got it. And she talked about the building of U.S. Bank Stadium, and she talked about how 
you're, build, you're building a stadium, big stadium. And what's one of the big beefs that everybody has with the big stadium? Bathrooms. And so then you think about what's your experience going to the bathroom between men and women. We, I mean, everybody's nodding their heads because we all know. Long line over here. We're standing around waiting for something to happen, like waiting for you to get done with whatever it all is that you guys do. And she said that um, as they're developing the stadium, <clears throat> what their goal was was to figure out how to change that experience because the females <clears throat> are waiting in line. The males who are with the females are also waiting, but they're not waiting in line. So nobody's experience is enhanced by this. So trying to, trying to enhance the experience of the female going to the restroom enhances everybody's experience. Uh, that, that makes sense to me as I think about these broader efforts of, of not just as it relates to this specific topic, but this idea of trying to build bridges is when we talk about issues of equity, we talk about issues of reconciliation, uh, part of it is recognizing where it came from, and then part of it is recognizing that in order to better this, that doesn't mean to decrease this. It means that the goal is that if we better this, uh, then everybody is going to end up better. And I think that is the focus that we need to have. I think it's the focus that law enforcement needs to have as we think about how we respect people and how we police ourselves, if you will, and how we show transparency is to say that if we're doing it the right way, everybody benefits from it. Because we're not going to have a police-free society. And nobody wants that. But uh, when the squad car shows up, I, I want the reaction to be, I'm so glad you're here. And that is not the reaction that we get all the time uh, in lots of communities. And so we have to change that. We've got we've to say, we need to make that experience better for you, just like we need to make it better for you. Desi, Desi, okay. Uh, I saw the, the, the pastor get up and I was like, it's a white church, not a black church. See, black church, we'd be going to 9 o'clock, although it's at 8 o'clock in time. <clears throat> so I was like, well, I'm giving a little bit more uh, talk. Yeah, there you go. There you go. pass. <laughs> See, it's cultural understanding. That <laughs> um, one of the things I want to reiterate what Mike said, um, and Mike and I have known each other for 20-plus years now. Um, we got on the board together over there called Summit Academy OIC in North Minneapolis. Mike was on that board, so was I. When Mike didn't prosecute Jamar Clark, I wrote this lengthy Facebook post about how his lens, his equity lens, was different than mine and how I would have prosecuted. It was funny because right before I took this job, that posted, it got shared like 800 or 900 times on Facebook. Channel 5 came and interviewed me about it. And I was like, man, the governor's going to look at this and be like, nope, we don't want that brother out there because he's talking about those things. But he said, no, come on board. But we can disagree about those things, but it's important to have a different lens. And how you can interrupt this is picking that person that you think you have the least in common with, sitting down to have a conversation. My personal story, Representative Tony Cornish, who's the chair of the Public Safety Committee uh, at the House of Representatives wrote an article back when Philando Castillo got shot. That article basically said, in order for you not to get shot as a black man, you should not talk back to the police, don't go out after 2 a.m., go get a job, and some other incendiary things. And I said, you know what? 
okay, I'm starting this police council. You know who I need to have on the police council? Tony Cornish. You know who needs to go talk to Tony Cornish in his office and sit down and have a conversation? James Burroughs. On his, and he's proud of it, on his door is a picture of Clint Eastwood with a gun. In his room is a picture of John Wayne with a gun. Not my favorite people of all time. But I sat down, we had a two-hour conversation. Do we agree on a lot of stuff? No. But we agree on some things that were common ground. And what it helped me do is understand, like, you know what? We got to have a dialogue and a discussion. Because if we're still so far apart, we can't even have a discussion about those things that make us different and different perspectives. He had probably never seen, and he talked about it, you know, never seen or talked to a black man like me before. Now, they, a lot of them exist. And I'm going to send a lot of them to Tony Cornish's office. But once we get out of that comfort zone, uh, we have to have to have that dialogue. That interrupts that racism. That interrupts that perception of officers. Uh, for a long time, I saw officers. If they stopped me, cool. If they didn't, I'm not talking to any officers. But around that Philando Castile shooting, uh, Mona Doman, uh, Ramona Doman is the chair of our public safety, uh, commissioner for public safety, in charge of all the state troopers. I intentionally said, okay, how do I talk to officers, meet with them, and talk about my perspective and my historical trauma. We didn't talk about that today, but I want you to all go look up historical trauma and find out what that means and what it's about because that lens is what I bring to that stop that's with a cop. That's the lens I bring to that conversation with somebody in that systemic oppression. That historical trauma is that mental illness that nobody talks about that's untreated, and when it's untreated, it just exacerbates and we don't address it. So addressing that historical trauma Inter interacting with people who are different from you. And the last thing is, um, don't get and don't believe everything you read and see in the media. Um, please, please, please. Um, because a lot of times you read and see that and say, oh man, that's exactly what happened. That's what I got to go with. And uh, it's the exact opposite. I tell you all the time, you know, I, my job is tough enough as a public servant. When you read this in the media and it's the misperception, a lot of times that makes it even worse. So thank you, Pastor. Go ahead. I don't want to cut anyone off. No, please, go ahead. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be quick. Um, I, would, I would just say, um, going again off of what James was saying about the historical trauma, um, I want to be really, really clear that when we talk about PTSD, um, for black and brown people in this country and native folks, there is no P. There, there, there is no post, right? The trauma has just continued, right? And that in terms of the, the um, sense around anti-blackness, here's what my, my commitment is, is to show up and do work that centers black liberation, that to me is about then, by extension, it really is liberation for us all. Because if we can in fact um, have liberation for those who have been the most left out, right, then it actually will free all of us and that my liberation is tied up to your liberation, right? And so if we can recognize that that is what we uh, get to do, and so how, do, how does that show up for me? Then as a healer in the community, then I try to show up in spaces that are more unlikely spaces, right? In places where um, you know, people can have experiences with, with folks like me who they wouldn't and I can have experiences with them. I hope to get to see some of you and many of you um, over the coming months because um, 
the group, myself and some other colleagues are going to be um, lead facilitators in Edina um, with uh, having community conversations and that's what's going to make the difference. It's like we're going to have to show up and get uncomfortable. And what I talk about, it's really about how do we spread the discomfort, right? Like we're all uncomfortable, like why should it all just land here? How about we spread the discomfort, right? Um, and you know, we can all just be uncomfortable together and we can work it out and we'll get to a better place, but it's like, you're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable too. Let's just be uncomfortable and figure it out, right? But we won't die from that. We won't die from being uncomfortable. But we will die from just staying in our comfort zone, right, and not actually reaching across the aisle and having those difficult conversations. Again, thank you for having me. I'm just, I'm just going to wait for you to stand up, then I'm going to start talking. So well, I can, cut, I can cut Captain Eric off. I did his <laughs> wedding. You're good. So you're good. Can, no, go ahead. I will just very briefly say that uh, for the anti-police rhetoric, we are trying to show our human side, to break down barriers, to show the community we're here for you. We're here to serve you. For the second part of the question, we are prepared to get uncomfortable and learn some things we might not be doing right, step out of our comfort zone, we're pulling up a chair at the table, and we're there. We're a founding member of the Hopkins Race and Equity Initiative. Um, we've had a couple conversations now circling around race, which can be difficult, and we're gonna have more of them. We have one coming up, coming up on Monday. So we're here to listen, work together, and uh, we're looking forward to improving our community as well. I know you all are tired of hearing me talk. This is my last statement. One, I just wanted to say thank you for having us here, Pescat. It means a lot. Um, thank you to all the panels, panelists that are here today. And keep clapping, because the biggest applause goes to all of you all that are out in the audience. Thank you all for being here. It means that you care, and it's extremely important, because you all will be in a lot of circles that I'll never be privy to be a part of those conversations. And that's where you have the opportunity to speak truth to power. That's where you have the opportunity to challenge the status quo, and to help us really see a shift in this paradigm, right? I believe that we can critique and love one another at the exact same time. I was just in India not too long ago studying social entrepreneurship and it became so evident to me love and the power of love and the fact that that's the only way that we're going to be able to win. So love your brother and sister even when you don't love their actions and you don't love what they do, love them because that's the only way we're going to get through this and I foresee that it's going to be a lot of darkness before we see the light and the way that we're going to get through is by loving each other but not being silent. Zora Neale Hurston said if you are silent during your oppression they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. So I'm never silent and I will not be silent. I urge you all not to be silent. Criticize. Keep critiquing. That's how we get better. That's how we perfect ourselves. There's not a bad thing to critique one another. But also let them know that you love them and that you're talking because you still have hope. When I'm not talking is when people should be concerned because that means all hope is gone. We're still talking, so it's hope. Thank you. That's it. James, I think we'll take you up on the church swap, but I'll tell you, the only times Lutherans like start getting animated or pass out is when it goes one minute over the service time. So 
Um, that's, that's what you were experiencing, and we can talk about that later. So um, would you please, uh, again, offer your sincere and warm thanks and round of applause for all of our panelists and for John Schultz, our moderator tonight. So I'll just say go in peace.